and I'm just here to honestly ask the Board of Education to pull it together. On April 6, 2021, high school senior Zoe Zamotes called into the public comment period of her school board Zoom meeting. I would really ask all of you to examine why you're here and think back on why you chose to run for the Board of Education. And the only answer to that question is to fight for students. She was speaking to the San Francisco Board of Education, the seven-member elected body responsible for overseeing the city's 119 public schools, 54,000-plus students, and a nearly $1.2 billion budget for the current school year. It's a body that neither answers to the mayor nor the Board of Supervisors. Like, I feel very lucky to be a senior. I think there's like 57 or something days until graduation, but I have a little brother who's entering sixth grade in SFUSD next year. So please pull yourselves together, refocus, and think about why you are truly here. Zoe was far from the only one upset with her school board. And in a moment, you'll find out why. This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives, a narrative series from the Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. As a veteran of progressive campaigns, I've long felt that liberals' professed values and practices are out of sync, and this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on those discrepancies in the hopes of eliminating them. On today's episode, a very first in this series, we're diving into the recall efforts being launched against school boards throughout the country, with a focus on one of the earliest recall efforts of the pandemic, the Campaign Against the San Francisco Unified School Board, or SFUSD. You're going to hear from a group of parents who helped spearhead the recall campaign, as well as those who took matters into their own hands by opening up learning hubs in direct opposition to the school board's efforts. Honestly, we don't have a good explanation from the school district as to why there was this level of failure. You also hear from Gabriela Lopez, who's the president of the San Francisco Unified School District and a target of the recall effort. When you push for people who are oppressed, you will get burned. This is The Regressives. But before we delve into the problems that led to San Francisco's school board crisis, let's take a look at the country's current obsession with school board politics. Education has been thrown under a microscope in recent years with the simultaneous emergence of the coronavirus pandemic and the idea of critical race theory, CRT, which has resulted in school board recall efforts more than doubling across the country in the past year alone. You've probably heard the term CRT thrown around on the news or on social media. Critical race theory is a way of thinking and teaching about America's past and present by looking at the role of systemic racism. It started as an academic concept dating back more than 40 years. And the core idea is that race is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embodied in America's legal systems and policies. But the concept has recently evolved to include an assortment of topics, including diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, inherent bias trainings, new concepts like white fragility and anti-racism, and old concepts like culturally responsive teaching. As a result, CRT has become a contentious topic among parents and public officials and a major driver of school board recall efforts across the country. Uh, it's now official. Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. The debate has gone so far as to influence some of the nation's most consequential elections in just one month leading up to the November Virginia governor's race, a race that many perceived as a bellwether for the 2022 midterms. Education overtook the economy as the most important issue among voters after heated debates on CRT. 
These demonstrators are calling on the school to denounce critical race theory and eliminate what they say are aspects of CRT that have made it into classrooms. To be clear, many of these partisan disputes and recall efforts are misguided attempts to kick up controversy over CRT in places where it doesn't exist or to punish officials for adhering to common sense public health guidelines. But the case of San Francisco is different. It was the first battleground of these growing school board fights, and their situation offers evidence that some parents are understandably frustrated over closures, and that certain efforts to address racial equity, whether we want to call it CRT or not, have resulted in understandable complaints from parents. This is supposedly an equity-first progressive city, and keeping schools closed is not progressive. Everyone seems to be in agreement at this point that kids can return to school safely, and we're seeing kids all over the country do that. We just want some real action now. Let's start with the closure debate. What made San Francisco unique from other school districts was how long it took to get its public schools back in person. As the 2020-2021 school year kicked off, one major school system after another moved back to some form of in-person instruction. D.C. in February 2021, Chicago in March, and New York in April. Houston even opened their doors to students as early as October of 2020. But as these cities and others began initiating their plans to reopen, San Francisco's board had its priorities set on other matters, matters that many viewed as trivial and straight-up ridiculous compared to getting students back to school. Records show that several of the board meetings were spent debating over renaming of schools, a discussion of whether to drop the merit-based admission system of a prestigious high school in favor of a lottery, and whether a gay dad was diverse enough for a parent committee position, an unpaid position, which they ultimately decided he was not. And while the board was busy deliberating over these matters, plans for reopening took a backseat. By the time of that April 2021 school board meeting that Zoe called into, 97% of students across the country had access to in-person learning in some form. Even private schools in San Francisco had their doors open as early as October. Yet deep into the spring of 2021, San Francisco middle schools and high schools had not brought a single child back into the classroom, nor did they have a clear plan or timeline for doing so. And students remained stuck in their homes and parents became even more frustrated. It is taking a toll. She's on the computer about six hours a day. She complains that her head hurts, her eyes ache, and she is frustrated not to be able to interact with her teachers and her peers in person. Not before long, two SFUSD parents, Autumn Lewin and Shiva Raj, decided to take matters into their own hands. We met in the middle of the pandemic. We met on Tinder. And... Um, Man, what do we even say about that? <laughs> she friends on me for about a, you know, for a month after our first date. <laughs> Autumn and Shiva decided to launch a recall campaign against a seven-member school board in an effort to, quote, get politics out of education and to ensure that San Francisco's public schools provide a quality education for every kid in the city. And they would soon find out that tens of thousands of parents across the city of San Francisco felt the same way that they did. I think for me personally, I mean, I've been, my, and I've got two kids in school, my older guy's a freshman in high school, and I saw him really struggle with distance learning, you know, through the pandemic. You know, it was, it was fine for a few months, but then, you know, he's kind of really regressed. It's important to note that the city's population is 50% white, but white students only make up 15% of the public school students. And as of 2015, 30% of school-aged children were going to private schools, the third highest private school attendance in the U.S., 
and 54% of SFUSD students were coming from low-income families. So in many ways, you had two different systems. You had the alternative system for more affluent people, and then the most at-risk people were largely concentrated in the public school system. Already, San Francisco has one of the highest rates of private school enrollment across the country. 30% of our kids are enrolled in private school. We have extreme income inequality, one of the highest in California, actually the highest in California. And so we have this stark disparity in the city where you know, the wealthy, privileged uh, families have a way out. They, don't, they are not dependent on the public education system. It's the middle class and the poor who are dependent. And these are the very families who were completely shut out for, for one and a half years in the name of equity. It's just remarkable that we don't see, like, the fallacy in this. Although graduation rates for San Francisco Unified School District, or SFUSD, are slightly higher than the state average at 86%, it doesn't tell the whole story. Remember how I told you that 54% of students come from low-income families? Fewer than half of those students are meeting eligibility requirements for state colleges and universities. That's despite what the State Department of Education calls a significant upward trend in graduation rates over the past decade. So COVID wasn't the only crisis facing San Francisco's kids. The system had been letting them down long before that. But the shutdowns exacerbated an already dire situation. So if you look at, for example, the statistics as as a consequence of that, there's about 800 kids who had less than 40% attendance. Most of those are black kids. It's about 8,000 kids that the school district really lost touch with. Most of them come from minority backgrounds, black, Latino, and Pacific Islander. Those kids also had some of the highest drops in, in learning, especially math and reading. We have, you know, lots of kids who are, come from homeless families, kids who are in foster, uh, foster care, et cetera, right? And so they don't have an environment at home where they can do distance learning. There is no environment. It drives us nuts to see this board saying that they're there for equity, protecting black and brown students. When if you look at the actual results on the ground for those same yeah. students, they have gotten worse under this board. And as the board failed to make progress or communicate a clear reopening plan, City residents and leaders, including the mayor, stepped in to fill the void. The school district is failing to meet this most basic responsibility. Because they were elected in 2018, only three of the SFUSD board members, Allison Collins, Gabriela Lopez, and Fauga Muliga, were eligible to be recalled when the effort started. The same uh, school board issued a resolution in October in 2020 saying we will bring school kids back in Jan. And they didn't execute on any of that. So... Those months should have been spent revising the MOU with the teachers' union, getting school sites ready, um, getting uh, testing infrastructure in place. Those are the three critical bottlenecks to reopening. None of that was done. The renaming panel proposed 44 schools should be renamed because of links to historic figures tied to oppression and racism. We heard all this renaming, you know, stuff that happened where they tried to rename like 44 schools in the district. Those school names included Washington and even Abraham Lincoln High School. The names on this list include George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Dianne Feinstein, and other historical and public figures whom the board deemed to have problematic histories. But parents and residents became concerned when it emerged that historians had not been consulted on the renaming committee, never mind the fact that they were debating whether to rename schools that weren't even open for kids at that point. I mean, you can do the symbols of social justice, but what really matters is whether you're changing the lives of the people on the ground. What's going to make the most difference to a child in our school district? Is it changing the name above their door, at the door of their school, or is it going to be changing the education they're getting so that they can go to elite schools just like anyone else and kick butt there? Another move that angered parents was when the school board denied a spot on the San Francisco Board of Education's Volunteer Unpaid Parent Committee. 
to a gay white father of a biracial child on the grounds that he wasn't, quote, diverse enough. And during a virtual Zoom meeting on February 9th, 2021, the school board spent over two hours deliberating the nomination of Seth Benzel before moving on to more pertinent matters. Now, mind you, this is two hours in a school board meeting about an unpaid volunteer position, and that was two hours they weren't spending on the reopening debate. Tuesday night, the Parent Advisory Council, known as PAC, tried to defend its selection of Seth Brenzel. Here's the current ethnic makeup of the PAC. Three Latinas, three white women, two African-Americans, one Asian, and one Pacific Islander. Again, all women. Brenzel would have been the only male member who happens to be white. Mind you, this volunteer parent committee had eight vacancies at the time and didn't have any men, and the committee ultimately decided to table the nomination of Mr. Brenzel who was on the Zoom call, but was never invited to speak or to answer a question or even state his name for the record. As one member of the public put it, quote, I'm very upset we're focusing solely on race. Seth would be the only male on the pact. He would be the only LGBTQ member, and he has a biracial child. To add to the mess, in June of 2020, Superintendent Vince Matthews tried to hire a reopening consultant, basically somebody to help them get the schools back open. But the school board rejected the idea because the consultant had worked with charter schools in the past, which meant many of the board members opposed it. There is this like really egregious example of a school reopening consultant that the school district wanted to hire in July 2020. And this individual was meant to help the school district kind of prepare because, you know, a lot of our school, school buildings are old. You know, we need to open windows. We need to do all of that kind of like basic foundational logistical stuff. But the school board rejected this consultant. There was $95,000 of grant money available to pay for this consultant. And they rejected this consultant because she presumably was a consultant for charter schools. Shiva and Autumn, frustrated by the board's misplaced priorities, launched a recall campaign. So when we started the campaign, we capped donations at $99 a person. Um, and we were running it entirely with volunteers. That was because we didn't want any particular voice to dominate. Now, we gathered 22,000 signatures at that point, but we only had a couple months left to make the ballot. So everything that has ever made the ballot in San Francisco in the last few decades has used paid signature gatherers. And so we went back to our community and said, are you guys okay with us hiring paid signature gatherers? We'll have to raise our donation cap and stuff. And every single person was like, yes, hire them. Yes, hire them. We don't want our work to go to waste. So we went out and we raised our cap to $49,500. And we um, hired paid signature gatherers on our own. While Shiva and Autumn focused their efforts on gathering signatures to trigger a February 2022 recall, another group took matters into their own hands to help San Francisco's most vulnerable students get back to school. The city has announced what it's calling community learning hubs, places kids can walk to for remote learning with internet access and adult supervision. To help understand that effort, I spoke to David Phillips and Carolyn Gramsdorf, San Francisco Bay Area residents who studied the city's work to provide alternative learning hubs, an effort the school board was indifferent towards. I believe that the schools closed down on, on about March 13th or 14th. And the story that we heard the mayor had probably decided this or knew that this is heading in that direction um, on a Thursday. Um, they made the announcement on a Friday. When that decision came out, there was nothing in place. And, you know, there was a, obviously a great need because we were also anticipating that our medical professionals, essential workers, uh, we're really going to need to have a place for their children. And so that's actually the root of the start of the hubs. So then Maria 
said, okay, well, we need support for this, right? We cannot do this on our own. Even with us and the CBOs, we need sort of political cover. We need buildings, right? And, and we need resources. So she showed up at the joint uh, select committee. She went to the board of ed. She went to the you know, public library commission meetings and said, here's the challenge for our most vulnerable kids. School's not going back. Here's what the city can do. Here's what we can do together. And here's what it looks like, right? Just painting the picture. Here are Shiva and Autumn again. And it was interesting because parents were crying out to help. The city right. was was trying to help. The right. city ran these distance learning hubs yeah. um, that served a lot of kids of essential workers so that they would stay on track um, and give them a place where they could do their homework and so on. But um, they reached out to the school district for help because they wanted to use school sites. They could serve more kids. The school district was totally uninterested. We could have served thousands more kids. Exactly. And instead, those kids have fallen behind. Yeah. And, you know, it's remarkable that, you know, we live in a city where we pride ourselves on being focused on social justice and equity. I mean, that's what San Francisco stands for. So many people who live here, you know, we believe in that so strongly. That is the ethos that we come from. And yet here, here's a school board that is shutting down an essential service that is primarily, you know, being used by the middle class and poor. I mean, when public education shut down, it's not the wealthy or affected. They're, you know, they're merely inconvenienced. David and Carolyn believed that the school board had little interest in helping establish learning hubs. The school board had a choice, right? The school board could have said, yes, these are our most vulnerable babies. Let's do all we can and partner and figure out how we combine our resources to do that. Um, instead, and I think, you know, you will hear, there was talk of privatization. There was talk of, you know, Maria Sue being um, Betsy DeVos, lots of, you know, kind of inflammatory, ridiculous rhetoric. And so rather than being a, yes, let's come together, let's do something like, let's, you know, figure this out, both because it's going to support the kids. But honestly, as someone who's a former principal, this can support my teachers. <laughs> the hubs are intended for high needs kids living in public housing or hotels, homeless and foster youth and English language learners. They are the children of working parents who would otherwise be home alone. We could create small groups, state, safe, stable groups, right, where kids could come together and be learning and continuing with probably pedagogy that's a little bit better than what we saw from most of the distance learning. And this is no bash on teachers. I mean, they, they were heroic in just the pivots that they had to make. But if all this wasn't enough, in March of 2021, past tweets by the school board vice president, Allison Collins, came to light. Parents, students, and alumni from San Francisco public high schools held a rally today to denounce incendiary tweets by a school board member. Board Vice President Allison Collins's tweets from more than four years ago recently came to light and allege anti-blackness, quote, within the Asian community. She sent the tweets in December of 2016 criticizing the Asian American community for using white supremacy to, quote, get ahead and compared the Asian community to house N-words. This revelation drew immediate backlash from parents who demanded her resignation. There were also calls for the Board of Education Vice President Allison Collins to resign over allegedly racist tweets she sent in 2016 about the Asian American community. She apologized in a Medium post over the weekend, but calls for her resignation have been heard from the mayor's office to Sacramento. And in her apology, Collins did not mention the Asian American community in a one-minute statement. 
And President Gabriel Lopez, who we'll be speaking with later in this episode, asked for, quote, restorative justice on the matter. Mind you, this was a group of people who wouldn't allow a reopening consultant for their past work with charter schools or wouldn't allow a parent on a volunteer committee because of their identity, but felt like forgiveness was called for in this matter. Collins says she's the target of a smear campaign. It's another big distraction as city schools struggle to rebound from the pandemic. Ultimately, the school board voted to strip Collins of her leadership roles and remove her from all committees. But Allison Collins responded by suing the school board for $87 million. And when we come back, we'll speak with San Francisco School Board President Gabriel Lopez to better understand the school board's motives and actions. This is The Regressives. Gabriel Lopez is the president of the San Francisco School Board. She was first elected in 2018 as the youngest official ever elected in San Francisco, becoming the president in January of 2021, right before everything shut down. And now she's one of the three members being recalled. Our school district had decided we needed to pause. Um, you know, we, we closed schools on the Friday. Monday, we were already um, opening up school sites um, and food distribution sites Uh, that were close to areas where families can join safely, can pick up food safely, uh, because we recognize that when we shut schools down, there's there are all these systems in place to help our families and our students keep moving um, in their day to day lives. And that will be gone. Um, So that whole 2020, I was at this site um, on the ground. We were providing teaching tools, we were providing learning tools, school materials. Um, now uh, our parents are becoming students' educators formal, in, a, in a more formal way than they were before, but they didn't have the, the ability or the tools or the understanding yet to help them through that. And because we were, we were really ahead of the game in ordering laptops to make sure that our students um, had them at home, Uh, They had uh, new tools that they wanted to explore more. So I provided Zoom lessons and uh, in-person lessons for those who who really wanted a deeper connection. Well, uh, we are speaking in the middle of a recall campaign. Uh, From your perspective, what's going on here? Uh, So initially, when when this all started, I want to say it was around... January. Um, I had just been elected president, so I haven't I haven't done a full term of my presidency before this year and, and everything that came. Um, but my understanding is that there's a, a the one the couple that launched it wanted to be a part of this this push to um, get school board members to either resign or be recalled. Um, and just so you know, my my understanding is this is an effort that's happening across the country to really go after school districts that what they're saying is didn't open during the pandemic. Um, and now that we did, the the reasons switch, things have come up to kind of paint a picture of an unstable school board. Um, but really it's around many of the decisions we've made in our term that people aren't um, a fan of that that have honestly been in the works for probably decades. So just just looking at this timeline, looking at the the time wasted on even thinking about it and having these discussions on potentially going through a campaign when we would go through one in the same year, a couple months later in November, um, really points to 
this uh, recall fever, so to speak, or or this attempt to get voters, um, less voters out on a, an election that doesn't really call for that many people. Um, so we're we're here. Yeah, <laughs> I think this came to my attention as somebody who doesn't live in San Francisco. When I saw, I think it was a tweet from Heather Knight where uh, there was a committee assignment and then there was a parent, um, I think it was a gay dad of a mixed race student from the public school system wanted to volunteer for a parent advisory board. That discussion took two hours and I think wound up parent not being allowed to sit on that advisory board. And I think there was that combined with the renaming debate. Mm -hmm. And there are groups out there that I think are critical of the board. I think have criticized that that the school reopening, to th to their estimation, wasn't given enough time on the agendas of the school board meetings relative to its importance. Because, like as you said earlier, it's the number one priority, right? If it's the number one priority, why are we spending two hours on on this dad and not letting him sit on a, a volunteer board? Why are we spending so much time on the renaming debate relative to the reopening? What do you say to that criticism? Um, the, that's part of the narrative that's being told and often the inaccuracies that people like Heather Knight um, add to. Um, the discussion was more about how we invite and welcome people to be a part of the groups that serve on committees that then um, share information with the board. And that's a deeper issue about, again, involvement of community members who aren't often in these spaces. I like I I stand by this. I just don't I don't understand how having these discussions on top of the the part of the work which was returning to school had to be removed. And and again, I think it was a complicated situation because of course none of us have ever lived through a pandemic, but to me the idea that it was only going to be about a return to school and nothing else, knowing that all of those things were in place long before um, any of this coming to our meetings um, was was interesting to me. And what I what I just get down to is people don't want to have those conversations. People don't want to talk about how like the renaming, for example, was an issue that had been sitting for some time that we hadn't finalized so as someone who is now president of the board, there's work happening that um, requires a final decision to be made. So this is also work that we inherited that I wanted to make sure was done. Um, but the idea of having a conversation, um, even like, and we could talk about the process and, and I recognize that I even wrote about it in a statement um, so that there were, there was less attention on it and less distraction. The, the main point in the spirit of that work is how do we elevate uh, students that are not necessarily shown in their schools, in, in the stories that we tell, in the lessons that we teach? Um, and part of that was the naming. And this group had this effort. And so we needed to recognize that. And um, I see that. I see this large pushback when it comes to a situation like that. When students who are generally students who are from oppressed communities are asking for this and we are having a discussion to respond to that need, people push back. And then they'll, they'll give all of the 101 reasons why it's just not the right time. Um, and as a leader, I'm, I didn't want to operate that way. And uh, 
What's the demographics of the San Francisco school system roughly? We are widely a very diverse uh, school district. So largely Latino, um, very small black population, but that's that's evident in the San, in San Francisco. Uh, I know 15% white. Um, uh, I, I do want to just add that there are over 70 languages spoken um, in our families, in our school district. So there's a, a large... Um, large communities of um, of color that you often don't see in, in example, in these advisory committees or um, in spaces that would really uh, benefit from listening to their perspective and their understandings. And what uh, what's the percentage of Asian American students in the district? I feel like it must be one of the biggest, right? Yes, I it is. I know that it is. I don't have the precise number. You know, one of the reasons why I ask is that, you know, another reason why this board came to our attention was one of your colleagues, who I think is also being recalled, um, made some really widely criticized statements about the Asian American community. I think she called us the house N-word, you know, other terrible things. And I think part of what has been confusing to those of us who are progressives looking at the district is that... There's all that attention to, like, you know, the volunteer, the committee, the renaming of schools. But Commissioner Collins still sits on that board. And I could have this wrong, but I think on March 20th, you you defended her uh, and said that you appreciate that she apologized for her remarks. And you said, I quote, I stand in solidarity with Vice President Collins and the Asian American communities. And I just find that hard to understand, given that there's this push to renaming, this push for equity. But there's a bunch of people who are served by those schools who are Asian American, who I'm sure didn't appreciate having a school board member who made those statements. So why should she keep her job? Um, I'll answer your question, but I will say I'm not sure how that's connected to our conversation. Um, But I I, I do want to touch on it. And I um, appreciate this discussion just to kind of at least be able to give clarity on my end. So to recognize what was being said, we have to dig a little deeper about the background and the situation that was happening. Um, And it was response to a number of anti-Black sentiment that was being recognized at our schools. And I do know that it was before her term, it was before she ran. For me, uh, when I see these large efforts of sort of removing people immediately Um, I have to tap into my understanding of restorative justice. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that conversations need to be had, that that people need to sit down and um, really understand and talk and build on what what was happening. Um, I just, I keep seeing this happening where if there's an error made, instead of sort of coming together and um, helping solve the problem, which is what we preach as a city, it's what we say we're, we're, um, open to and need to um, build on that in reality in practice we do the opposite we sort of like pick sides and then go from there and let the pressure um, make these decisions for us and I I think I I have to kind of go with what my heart is telling me and so that's sort of what led to to that statement um, at the time I was also being threatened by a reporter to say that it was my job to to make a statement and in, in sort of this like, again, like 
the dynamics are very interesting across the city. Um, and I do recognize not only my position, but my person, who I am, my age, my my race. Um, so it it is very interesting how we operate. And because of that, I just kind of have to take it all in and, and make my decisions based on, on that. Um, yeah. Well, I think to clarify why I asked about it, I think I think partially because of some things you mentioned, which is that I've heard from the opponents of the recall that some of the things that you've said, which is that this is part of a strategy from your opponents, which is, so I think it's relevant to ask about it in that context. I think mm-hmm. also, you know, I just as an Asian American, I, I find it interesting just like who gets to decide what the restorative justice looks like, right? One thing that I found notable is that Collins, uh, Commissioner Collins turned around and sued the school district. I may have a different conception of restorative justice, but that to me, it seems like she was not in this mindset of contrition. You know, there, there were some apologies thrown around, but if she was truly apologetic, that lawsuit to a di- against the, like basically taking, if that lawsuit was successful, it would have taken money from students in the district, including whatever percentage are Asian American, um, would be taking money from the very students that she claims to serve. And th- that to me seems like the opposite of somebody who's interested in restorative justice. And and the reason why I ask is because she's also part of this recall, right? And you're mm-hmm. also the leader of the school board. So I think it's it kind of double part of the, the recalls, both her as a, re- a member under recall, but you as the leader of the board. That seems relevant, no? Uh, if you're, well, if you're explaining it this way, because um, there, there are a number of things that, I can't speak to because I'm not her, but I, I see what you're saying as far as the leader of a school district. And then just, you know, if we're going back to that point, the reason why, and, and I stayed completely away from this, from the lawsuit, um, just given my position, even though I wasn't targeted. But the reason why that happened was because, again, there was this sense of an error was made and our only response is to remove them out. Um and that to me was showing, which is why I didn't vote on her removal of vice presidency and of the committees. But what that shows is we're not ready to have any discussions, but we are ready to react immediately to to throw a person away. And that happens in, in many parts of our community work when it comes to actually doing what we say we do. One thing I wanted to ask about was this uh, reopening consultant debate. Uh, there was a consultant that I think the superintendent wanted to use in a reopening consultant. And as I understand it, that consultant's ties to charter schools became reason to reject that engagement. Do I have that right? And is there anything else there that is important context? No, you do. And and that's why the majority of the board voted it down, because um, as a public school system, we we have to be clear and recognize who were um, who and, and what connections to specifically charter school organizations are coming into our school district. And um, so as at that point, we did make that decision. And I, I do understand that many people were frustrated about that as well. Uh, but, at, you know, just recognizing that this was a process that no school district was was ready for or prepared for, it, it was going to be hard 
Uh, and it's still going to be hard until we we kind of um, are clear and open and just continue um, focusing on the areas that need improvement. But you got it on. You got it right. And using your standard from earlier, which is this restorative justice standard, um, what would it take for that person, that reopening consultant, to meet your criteria in the future? Or is that previous work from charter schools mean never work with that person again? Uh, it, I mean, that that's a, a pretty interesting question. In order for that process to happen, one, uh, we'd need to begin forming a, a deep relationship with the with the consultant, um, recognizing their involvement with our school district, um, seeing like what conversations can be had in order to, to understand the issues that the board had in order to bring them on. And then moving forward, what are areas that we either want to avoid or we definitely want to build on to protect our public school system. Um, and it's not necessarily the one person, but this is a whole organization of of quote unquote educational systems that are set to take us down. We've seen it across the country. We've seen it in LA. We've seen it um, primarily in areas of communities of color where they're they're taking away from from what we know and what we want to contribute and um, provide for our students as a, a public resource for everyone. Uh, so that's certainly a, a larger discussion. But but yeah, it's uh, for me the biggest thing, and I think the issue that people are having with um, that, that I have with uh, people who are combative against my, my own understandings, my values, my policies is they're not directly connecting. Uh, they, they are not seeking to have a conversation. They're not seeking to try to get an understanding. And I'm open. I've always been, people have access to my number. Um, I'm very public about um, why I do what I do and how accessible I am if they'd like to. Um, but mostly I met with a lot of combativeness, a lot of um, inappropriate remarks, a lot of often violent uh, responses that makes it harder for me to to build with you. So if, if we want to have this restorative approach, I'm happy to. If you cross the line, I don't care if I'm an elected, I will end the conversation. And a lot of what I'm dealing with right now is the is the, this abusive pushback um, and just inappropriate ways of operating and treating a person. Yeah. Anything else you'd want listeners to know just about assuming that this goes through or even if it doesn't, just your side of the story, anything else we didn't get across that you really want to make sure that we share with our listeners? Uh, that's actually personally a, a question because I've a big part of my next step in my life is pursuing a PhD. And at this moment, because I also don't want to run for higher office. I think that's that's another fear of, unfortunately, of this role is when people get elected to the school board, they tend to go to board of supervisors and, and move forward. Because I don't have this sort of trajectory, um, I don't fear how I vote. Right now, I'm very fortunate. I, I recently started working as an adjunct instructor at the University of San Francisco, and it's just... Oh, nice. Those are my dreams. Um, this is my work. This is my world. And as a board member, it's bringing those perspectives and that understanding to a decision-making space. What I've been met with is a lot of um, abuse. Um, and I fear that people like me who are watching 
might not be inspired and motivated to continue. And so that is why I'm going to fight a a recall campaign. That is why I'm going to empower and motivate young people to do the same thing. So it's just like, how do we set people up to be prepared for what's expected? When you push for people who are oppressed, you will get burned. I'm going to continue doing that. But I also have to think about my future and, and pursuing a PhD is has to be part of it. As Gabrielle Lopez mentioned, she plans to continue to fight the recall effort. And since the taping of these interviews, Shiva Raj and Autumn Lewin collected over 81,000 signatures to trigger a special election set for February of 2022, which San Francisco Mayor London Breed supports. They have become a distraction, and if they really genuinely cared about our kids, they would get out of the way and allow us to move forward with people who understand financial management, who understand the need to put children before anything, before politics. A judge also dismissed. Allison Collins' $87 million lawsuit against the San Francisco public schools, but the legal fees cost the district $200,000 to close out. San Francisco schools are facing declining enrollment, and fewer students means less state funding. Now the district must cut roughly $125 million out of the approximately $1.1 billion budget. Matters only got worse for board members. A few weeks after my interview with President Lopez, the district was greeted with the news that it faces a possible takeover by the state due to budget problems. In early November 2021, the SFUSD released their plan to cut $125 million from their budget, which includes a cut of $50 million in general funding for individual schools, $10 million cut from specialized student services such as special education and junior ROTC, $20 million from administrative and operations services. In addition, a cut of 360 school-based jobs and 55 administrative jobs, including the complete elimination of counselors. The board approved the staff's balanced budget plan tonight by a vote of six to one, with President Gabriela Lopez voting no. But it really came down to the wire. On December 14th, a day before the deadline set by the California Department of Public Education, the San Francisco School Board approved the budget proposal, thus avoiding a state takeover. What are the lessons we can draw from this story? Here are mine. First, progressives need to be more focused on the unsexy nuts and bolts of governing, budgeting, management, accountability, timelines, communication. I see this in my own city, where Mayor de Blasio has presided pre-COVID over record surpluses but failed to improve so many of the city's services. Second, progressives need a coherent set of policies, beliefs, and practices to get kids what they need to succeed in this world, especially the most vulnerable kids. I have my own list. And some of those tools may be unpopular with certain progressives, like charter schools, for example, which affluent and upper middle class progressives tend to hate, but lower income communities tend to support in greater number. But you don't need to go with my set of ideas if you have your own ideas. This is a problem from the local to the national level. Beyond greater funding, it's hard to find a coherent thread that ties progressives together. And that's why they're vulnerable to critiques like the CRT critique in Virginia and why parents are often very upset with them. But if you go back, there was almost no discussion of education policy at all during the 2020 Democratic presidential primary debates. And the discussions that we did have were kind of antiquated and irrelevant to today's challenge, like the back and forth between Kamala Harris and Biden over busing. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Third, progressives are too obsessed with buzzwords and social media performance art. 
If you go back and watch many of these school board meetings, they feel more like sociology seminars than government meetings. And board members feel like actors on a stage posturing for Twitter and for activists instead of tackling the tough questions that the kids need. I suspect that many of you listeners would see these trends in government meetings, progressive activist gatherings, and other centers of progressive power throughout the country. I certainly have. Meanwhile, every 365 days, over 48 million students begin their journeys in public schools throughout the country. Do we have a plan for them? Are there competent, focused leaders looking out for them? Do you even know who calls the shots for your city's kids and how they spend their time? If you don't, it's time to hold their feet to the fire. So this is Regressives, which is a narrative series that we're going to be dropping in our Lost Debate feed for the Lost Debate show for now, but which eventually will live on as its own show. Regressives is produced for the Lost Debate by Joe Engelbrecht, Mickey Ayub, with research support and help from Pete Cook and Joe Garvey. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.